Hi, this is Gates McFadden, and I played Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This podcast has always been about learning the who's who when it comes to Star Trek. For the past year, we've met with character actors, stunt performers, writers, makeup artists, and many, many more to take the deepest of deep dives into their origins, learn about how their profession works, and hear all of their amazing stories. I think it's a pretty unique sector of the Star Trek podcast world, and one that I'm very happy to be a part of. But as it turns out, I'm no longer alone in that area, and, well, you might be familiar with my new competition. Today on Trek Untold, we're speaking with the one and only Gates McFadden. You probably know her from six seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation and all of the TNG movies, and starting on May 12th, she hosts a brand new podcast called Gates McFadden Investigates, Who Do You Think You Are? This podcast is the debut show from Nacelle Cast Studios, which is an offshoot of the Nacelle Company, who you may already know from their Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us, as well as the CW series Discontinued, and their upcoming History Channel docuseries all about Star Trek. The Nacelle Company always puts out top-notch content, and now with Gates on board for their first ever podcast, you know it's going to be good. And of course, it's pretty obvious that the Nacelle Company are Star Trek fans because, well, it's in their name. So it goes without saying that this new podcast will have Gates interviewing many of her TNG alumni, with the debut featuring a one-on-one chat with Jonathan Frakes. Now you've heard Frakes before on this show, but you've never heard him talking for an hour uninterrupted with his co-star. They share a bond which travels across the entire TNG family that no other host could have with their guest unless they went through something like that. I got to hear some clips from the show, and it's very fascinating and very personal too. It's pretty surprising what kind of stories they get to tell on the show. So in this episode of Trek Untold, I do my best to replicate the experience of Gates McFadden Investigates and what you might hear on her show. But you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, wait, no, that's that's LeVar Burton's line. That's a different podcast. Uh, either way, stay tuned for my hour next with Gates McFadden. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. 
There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold and now joining us on the other side of the screen. I don't think she needs any introduction and I've already given her like a five minute one before the show began. Uh, but as you folks can see today, we are speaking with the lovely Gates McFadden. Gates, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so wonderful to be able to talk with you today. Uh, you know, we, we posted about this on our social media and we got such a huge response. Uh, so many questions oh, people want to know about you and I've got a ton of things too. We're going to be digging deep today because that's what we do on Trek Untold. Ooh, okay. Digging deep. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> so let's just actually jump in first and talk about the real reason that you're here. And that's because you've got a podcast coming out. Uh, you've got Gates McFadden Investigates, which is debuting on May 12th. So uh, yeah, when was this idea for a podcast first born? Well, you know, it's funny. It was, um, I'm trying to remember actually the date when it happened. I think it was maybe in March or April of the pandemic. Um, and I had just gotten back from the cruise. I actually had COVID, but I was, I didn't have a serious case, thankfully. And I got a call from Brian Voke Weiss, who is the uh, CEO of uh, Nacelle. And he was so lovely and funny, and I'd never had sort of a CEO be like he was. He was just so down to earth. He's just a terrific guy. I really like him. Um, and he said, you know, Gates, um, I've been a big fan, and I just think you would be great doing a podcast. And I'm like, hello, what? <laughs> and he he was very persistent, and I said, I said, what? And I think he initially thought that I would talk about Trek. And I said, listen, you don't know, you don't know my friends in the cast and all of it. Nobody's going to want to sit there and talk about Star Trek with me. We do it all the time with everyone else. I said, no, no, they're all going to say no. And I don't, <laughs> you know, the people I do podcasts with know it much better than I do. Uh, and so I said, no, I really can't. And he said, well, it could be anything you want. You could have anyone on you want. And I went, no, 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 no. And then he came back, like, I don't know, sometime later and said, no, I really do want you to think about this and do it. And I said, I just really, I don't know what I would do. And, you know, he said, no, just be you and just do this. And, and I'm like, I don't know, Brian, um, thanks, but no. And, and then he calls me back again. And he says, no, no, you've got to keep thinking about this. All right. So this is the third time. And this is the God's truth. So the only other thing in my life that came back to me with three requests was Star Trek. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry on the after I turned it down twice came back the third time and called me from his jacuzzi and said hey you know I listen I think you ought to rethink this I think you really should do Star Trek and I mean duh what a dummy what was wrong with me that I didn't get this so I thought hmm maybe I should listen to this Brian Volk by you know Weiss and so I actually, the truth is, I went to my good friend's house and we were on the porch with our masks because we were, you know, we were really good about this. And I was like, okay, so I don't know. Should I do it? Should I not? 
And out of the blue, they had just gotten this dog a few months before who was terrified of everyone and everything. And the dog would not let me pet it, nothing. I could hold a biscuit and it wouldn't take it. So all, all of a sudden I was getting ready to go and I'm going, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, you know what? Let's the, let the dog decide. So I held out two biscuits, one in each hand. I said, if it's the left hand, I'm doing it. If it's the right hand, I'm not. And literally, it was hilarious. We, we were laughing so hard because the dog, it was as if he totally understood what was going on <laughs> and was going back and forth between which biscuit do I want? Which door am I going to open for this woman? And he went for the biscuit for the podcast. And I went, well, the dog dared me to do it. I better do it. And that is literally how I agreed to do it. <laughs> That is an amazing story. I did not expect it to end like that. <laughs> but, you know, the thing about it is I started then thinking about it. And this is the way I am about many things. It's like once I start something, I really get into it. I got into Star Trek. I got into building a theater in L.A. I, You know, you get into something. And I really started to get excited about it. And. At first, I was like, okay, I'm going to ask my friends. They're like so talked out by all podcasts. And, and they all said, yes. You know, they were so nice and supportive. And I ended up, we left. There's so many hilarious moments. And then there are other moments that are really powerful and moving. And and we talk about things that, that you know, maybe people have never heard before. Um, it's not about Star Trek, unless it just comes up sort of by chance for some reason. But um I, I don't know. It was really interesting. And then I, I also am not just talking to next gen people. I'm talking to uh, people in the Trek world who I, I'm really interested in and other actors from other shows. And uh, I don't know. I've been having a good time. I hope people like it. Who knows? You know, <laughs> but but uh, everybody is so interesting. And so I've been having a blast. Yeah, that's that's great. When I first heard about the show, too, I was like hearing the descriptions of it. And I was like, oh, man, she's doing Trek Untold without me. <laughs> it, <laughs> oh. it sounds so great. Spacey, you know, my show, it's about Star Trek. But I think we spend two thirds of the show not even discussing Star Trek. because There's so much more to it. Right, um, right. But yeah, I'd love to hear actually if you can tell us. Like, I know you've got Will Wheaton. I know you've got Jonathan Frakes at the debut episode. But can you tell us who mm -hmm. else is going to be in this first run of episodes? Well, I have Will. Will Wheaton is actually going to be a double episode because I'm telling you, I could not cut it down. We, <laughs> we had so much material and I played games with him because he's such a game master. So I set up a bunch of games and we had to put pennies in a uh, something so that people could hear when we got a point or didn't. And we cover every subject. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you will learn a lot about us that maybe you didn't know about. We talk about, you know, when did you learn, uh, lose your virginity? Uh, <laughs> you know, we get in there and then we talk about some very, um, you know, it's, it's the gamut. We talk about heroes and, um, just a bunch of things. And I have to say, I do adore him. My space son, there's no one like him. He's just the best. And, and then I, I have, um, Michael Dorn. I have Nana Visitor. I've talked to Marina, um, Denise Crosby, uh, Robert Picardo, John Delancey. You know, I mean, and it's not over. It's it's just that I had to take a, a break because I I learned how to edit sound because what I realized 
was it didn't work for me just to give the material to them and have them edit it. I had to be like the director of it. So I had to learn how to sound edit. And if I had a real problem and I needed it separated better or something, they would fix that. I had a wonderful sound editor, editor from Nacelle who I adore. Uh, and he talked me through so many things. And then he would make it sound like he would make the sound better sounding at the end. I don't know what he does with all of those buttons, but I basically did the editing and it took a long time. I can attest to that. I'm full-time <laughs> a video editor outside of this actually. So I know exactly the pain that you're going through, but I'm so impressed yeah. to hear you're actually the one doing that editing. That's another, yeah. another big surprise. Well, you know, I'm just looking at a text from Will Waiton right now. <laughs> just a second. Oh, His son has interrupted us. Yeah, he has. Um, he's the best. I mean, really. Uh, I can't think of anybody who is more of the Star Trek world in the best possible way than he is. At any rate, yeah, I did because it made it interesting to me. You know that, Matthew, how when you actually are really in the nitty gritty of it, like I'm going, okay, that that's just messy, that part. You know, wait, what are you trying to say, Gates? Just take you out of there. What, you know, I think that's when it really comes alive, to be honest, because it's not just something rambling. You really kind of get the the parts that... um they kind of build. And, and I love that. I love that sort of, um, well, I love directing. So I love that, that aspect of it. And I like making people shine. So I really, it, that's what I felt when I was teaching. So I think everybody comes off very well. Maybe not me, <laughs> but I don't know. We'll see. You'll tell me. <laughs> well, that's the perpetual problem of all uh, podcast hosts. So don't feel too bad. We're all concerned about ourselves. <laughs> oh, good. Because it's tough to listen to yourself. You're like, who is that person? <laughs> you know, and I feel like I'm jumping ahead of my question list a little bit here. But since you brought up the editing, uh, I had read an article about your directing debut in Star Trek, which was the episode Genesis. And hopefully yep. we'll have some more time to talk about that a little bit later. But uh, in that article, I read that one of the biggest things you had like some time getting used to was actually that editing process because you sat with the editing room, right? And that was just like a real kind of scary process for you, right? It wasn't scary. It was thrilling. thrilling I had okay. also, yeah, I'll tell you, I had also been very involved with Labyrinth in um, some of the editing for that documentary. And I always was making scenes for the director. And I did that for Gavin Miller's Dream Child, which I did through the Creature Shop, Henson Creature Shop. And you're always, you know, working in that way of editing. What Now we're going to cut to here and then we're going to do that. I love that. So what I never had now editing, I'm not, I have no idea how to literally do it with the, um, you know, software. But what I do is I can sit there and say, no, no, don't we have something in the other shot where it's this and this? And I love that. And, you know, he, the editor was so fabulous and patient and he was excited to have me there. I had actually, I think I had asked Rick or Rick asked me, maybe, I don't know. Someone said, do you want to be involved with the editor? And I said, yes. And so every day, you know, I went for a week and we went every day and we edited stuff. And now my choices didn't always make it, but you learn that way. And, um, and I really worked well with him. Um, J, JD, I think his name was, he was just wonderful. And, and he wanted to actually nominate that for an Emmy, that episode, because he thought the editing was really, really, uh, good. The coming, obviously he was the master and I was the pupil. Oh, that's a great episode, though. Yeah, it is really like shot so differently and it's edited so differently, too, because it is approached as essentially a horror film. Exactly. Exactly. But it does have, you know, it has this, it's the sci-fi. It's not just an, a normal, you know, someone's on the loose. It is interesting how there's something scientific 
and you're finding what's going to bring us back. And that's all about viruses and everything. And we certainly know now how important understanding viruses <laughs> is. <laughs> Yeah, I got to tell you, I haven't done some rewatching of a bunch of TNG, a bunch of DS9 recently. And anytime I see any episodes about viruses, I'm like, why is it so topical? Why does it have to be topical? <laughs> Can it I not know. be topical? I know. I know. I, it, well, yeah, that's the thing. That's It's what you can't see that's going to sneak up on you there, right? Of course. So now, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Trek Untold, we spend a lot more time not talking about Star Trek, and I'm going to be true to that. So uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about some of your work in the theater world beforehand, and I'd love to actually hear... What was your very first professional theater gig that you booked, and what did you learn from it? Well, I was paid for something when I was 14. Yeah, my first play was a Tennessee Williams play, and I was booked, and I did get paid something to do it with this group on Cuyahoga Falls. And it was um, it was a big step for me because I really, by that time, I did love acting, and um I love the plays of Tennessee Williams. He gives you characters you can really sink your teeth in. The only thing was, is I had to kiss the guy in it. There's not like this one kiss. <laughs> he was older than I was. I was 14. I had, I don't think I'd ever kissed actually. So that was a little gross because, you know, <laughs> he, he was going at it. And so I didn't even know what that kind of a French kiss was. And it was like, whoa, wait a minute. But it was quick. My father was a little disturbed by it, but it was a really good experience. And then I think it was, um, let's see, then I did choreography for the Harvard Hasty Pudding Club, which was like, that was a nice paycheck. Did that for two years and little things. But then I guess my first, where I got my equity card was Cloud Nine. Carol Churchill cast me in the Tommy Toon production in New York City. And I was, I had just left teaching and left some other things and just started acting in New York. I had just really made up my mind um, because I never meant to go away and teach for so long. It just happened. I kept getting offers of stuff. So that was the first time, and that was pretty amazing. It's one of the most incredible productions. Um, and I'm trying to think, how to... that was the first time where I got my equity card and a paycheck, but that can't be true because I did Shakespeare in the Park and that came because James Lapine, I had known him at Yale Drama School. Um, I had been dating a guy who was at Yale Drama School. And he said, and Des McEnough, they were both friends of ours. And, he, and they kept saying, why aren't you acting? I don't understand. You trained as an actor. I did. I trained for years as an actor. What are you doing like teaching and just directing? And I'm like, well, I, you know, it's hard now. And, and both of them said, no, 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 you should do it. And James Lapine said, I never, I didn't have an agent at that point. You have to understand. And James Lapine said, I want you to be in the show. Um, and I'm going to have Diana Venora from Juilliard audition, and I want you to audition for Hippolyta. And um, he said to me afterwards, he said, I don't know what to do. He said, because I love you both and you have very different things. She comes from Juilliard and has an agent and has been doing a bunch of stuff and you've never done a full out production. So here's what I want to offer you is if you will play a fairy in the show, I will guarantee you a Saturday night as Helena and you can get your agent and Christine Peransky was doing Helena. So I said, yes. 
And I said, but I don't want to play a pretty fairy because he was going to have everybody sort of like that. I said, I don't, I want to do something that's weird and funny and give me a fat suit. So he gave me a fat suit and I got to just be um, a little bit clown-esque with uh, Bill Hertz Oberon. And then I did Helena and I have to say it changed my life. I got six agents offered to sign me. It was an amazing night. There were 2000 people. It was just extraordinary. And Christine Baranski was lovely to, you know, um, she was, I think her, someone in her family had gotten married. And so she wanted to be away for that Saturday night, but it changed my life. It really did. It, and if I had started trying to find an agent at that point, because most of my friends had been doing it already for 15 years. And I had been teaching and doing other stuff and been in Europe, you know, doing theater. So there, there you go. That's the full story. But meeting Carol Churchill, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing show. I have to say that show was phenomenal in both the script. Uh, everybody played at least two roles. My character was the triple role, which was the gem of the whole thing. And I got to play uh, an older woman. So I had, I got padded up for that. And then I played, um, a middle-aged woman, and then I played someone uh, much younger. And it was, people didn't know it was the same person until you went around at the end. And it, it's a beautiful play. If you haven't read it, read it. Uh, I spoke to Jonathan Frakes and Arvind Shimmerman recently, and I found out that they actually knew each other back during their theater days. Uh, I so know. I'm curious if you ever ran into any of the uh, people who would eventually be Trek mm -hmm. alumni during your days back then. There's only one, you see, because I didn't start acting in my 20s in New York, I was teaching in theater departments like at NYU or Brandeis. So I was directing. I was directing plays and I directed something in New York. But when I started, when I had done that Midsummer Night's Dream and then right around in there is when I met Brent Spiner. <laughs> and so I was teaching somewhere at that point, but I was still dating the, the guy who became a, a producer in New York, a, a very big producer in New York, actually. Um, and they, one of their first shows they ever produced was with Des McEnough. And then they did the next one was, um, what was the director? Andre Belgrader, I think maybe. And he cast, uh, it was a two person play, Emma Gray's, and that was Brent Spiner. Was And he was fam fantastic in it. And I just would talk to him when I'd be, you know, because I'd go to rehearsals and we'd just give, you know, I'd say what I thought about the show or something like that in a very casual way. Um, but I was interested and I thought Brent was very funny, very charming. And yeah. Well, watch me segue that into something else sort of Star Trek related, but not Star Trek related. So we're still talking NYC theater scene here. And one of your earliest on-screen roles was in Muppets Take Manhattan. Right. And uh, that connection there I'm making in my head is you were on that with you know, Lonnie Price in that film. I don't, you didn't do any scenes with Lonnie Price, but no. he's very well known in the New York City theater scene. And that film also has Juliana Donald, who was in TNG and DS9 later on. But um, see, but I didn't. No, I was just... I was Dabney Coleman's secretary. Yeah. I mean, Dabney Coleman, I, I thought was hilarious. I loved him. But that's really the only person other than the, the Muppets that I saw, really. You know, uh, it was also the first big movie I'd ever done. And so I, my, I, I think I was in shock most of the time. I mean, it's definitely got to be a little shocking working with Muppets. I mean, we've talked to Juliana, in fact, about having to emote with something that can't emote back to you. So, uh, you know, what's it like working with Muppets? Oh, it's a joy. It was so easy. See, I, because I, I've tried to stay, have that childlike part of me always stay there. And I loved, 
you love pretend when you're a kid. I still love pretend. You love it when you're a parent and you're pretending with your child. I mean, it's it's one of the most fun things in the world to do. Is uh, so it was easy, you know. And also, I was totally in love with uh, Kermit. I thought he was the greatest. I mean, he always was my favorite of all the Muppets. No matter how sassy anyone else was, I mean, Miss Piggy was fantastic. And I'm just talking the 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 puppets, the characters, not. You know, like I love um, Frank Oz and he's hilarious, but it was just something very simple. Um, I actually that's the joke that I've told at some conventions when, you know, they're they're in the pit and you're higher up. So and my role was small, I'm like, you know, I'm like a frog with a musical to see, you, you know, something like that. And so they always do this trick and I'm sure they did it to the other people who were actors on the set. They try to get you to talk to them when they're on a break. So what happened was, is I was so nervous. They all suddenly have a signal from Jim to disappear. And you don't know what's going on. And I'd never done film, so I didn't ask or anything. I just was like, I'm going to just sit here. And I thought I'd just go over my three lines or something. <laughs> and And Kermit, he had stayed there. But I didn't, you know, I didn't put this together and I'm looking and there, Kermit is looking in this frame that's on the desk and he's using it as a mirror and he's doing this thing where he's like looking at his profile and sort of doing what I'm doing of like, well, gee, should I look this way? Is that going to be better? And I actually said, I, I talked to him and I went, what are you doing? You know, because it was like, and then he answered back and then I answered something back. And then I went, wait a minute, Jim, you know, so that's what they do. And then as soon as they have tricked you, then they all come back. So that's like the Muppet hazing, basically. I think it is. It's a nice hazing. <laughs> now, I do like to dig deep through people's resumes. And I saw this really weird one on your IMDb page. And I had to look it up because you're listed as being on an episode of Saturday Night Live. And I actually found that episode of Saturday Night Live on Peacock. Uh, and your credit is person who gets kissed in the audience by bill murray and that's exactly what happens i found that clip so i'd love to hear the story about that entire night well you know what's really funny is i'm so old that i couldn't even remember that and <laughs> and and i had different people on twitter saying yo no you, you you were on saturday night live and i went no no I, I and yeah bill murray kisses you and i'm like no no and then when they showed it to me they said that's you and i went oh, that is me because i knit the sweater that i was wearing and it was a very particular sweater so I knew that was me. <laughs> and, you know, I remember then I started, the, my memory was coming back and I can't tell you who it was who invited me, but it was someone connected with the show and they were very specific where they wanted me to sit. I was trying to sit in the back and they said, no, 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 we want you to sit here. We want you to sit here. And I'm like, okay, fine. Because Bill knew he was going to do something like that. So they didn't want to get sued. So they, <laughs> they knew that I was going to be chill. And yeah, I was totally shocked that he did it. And it was funny. And I had completely forgotten that until I was reminded. So it's, a you know, amazing. <laughs> I kept going, no, that's not. No, I never did anything. Oh, that is me. <laughs> so essentially, you were a plant who didn't know that you were a plant. Right. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I do have one last theater question. but This is going to be a big theater question here. And uh, I actually asked this to Jonathan as well recently. I want to ask about Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. I kind of have like an obsession with that show. Uh, did you see? Did you get to see it? 
I never got to see it. I oh. found out about it because uh, some Star Trek Facebook group I'm in and someone like posted an eBay link to a program. I ended up buying a program off eBay and I'm just like so curious about this show because it's you, it's mm-hmm. Patrick, it's Jonathan, it's Brent, it's and Colin, Colin me. Yeah. and Jonathan Christian Gross, uh, yep. you know, all Star Trek alumni doing this show. Fantastic. Amazing show. I wish I could have seen. I've only seen YouTube performances from other places, but uh, yeah, I'd love to just first hear about you know how did you guys initially decide to do EGBDF? It was Patrick's idea. I think it was Patrick was at the point where he was going a little stir crazy with with just doing a one character role. He was used to doing a lot of different roles, as most of us were. You know, you didn't do at least for me. Other people had been on series. I had not been on a series like that. I had done pilots, but I had never done such a long term thing. And he knew we all love theater and he's, he was friends with Stoppard and he thought this is perfect because he saw that through Star Trek and the fandom that we could actually afford to get work with a full orchestra. So we were working with 80 piece orchestras. I mean, it was exciting in that way. There were so many, uh, we were in, in kind of the middle on different platforms and the action is through. It's like what's going on in the character's mind and to have it be that large and uh, it was awesome. It really was. And Patrick directed and played the doctor, which is just the most hilarious part, by the way, absolutely hilarious part. I mean, I had a ball. It was fantastic. My son was really little. That was the only part that was hard because I had to take him with me and then I'd have to find someone you know, I'd have to get, I uh, twist my mother's arm or someone's arm to come and stay in the hotel because he was really young. But the experience was just a blast because you, you know, I was telling someone else on a podcast yesterday, live theater, live performances, there is nothing like it. A music live performance, you know, if you go and you actually watch somebody paint, I mean, the idea of the arts when they are performed in any way or a live singer, just, you know, it's amazing. And there's something that happens between the spectator and the performer that is this connection. And sometimes it's a bad connection because, you know, people don't like everything. But when it's a strong connection, it's it's profoundly cool. <laughs> And I think that we all felt it. It was exciting. And we felt the musicians. So, I, I mean, orchestras are powerful. There's a lot of people who've never been to an orchestra. And a lot of our fans said, oh, that's the first time I've ever heard an orchestra play. It's powerful when you actually hear music like Beethoven's Fifth live instead of on a CD. It's very different. Now, for folks who don't know about EGBDF, they probably have no idea why we're talking about a giant orchestra. So I'd love to actually kind of explain what the story is for the play and why there is a giant orchestra in it. I have to refresh my mind on that. I mean, I think people can can also just Google it, but it, it's what's happening in these two prisoners. And one of them, it's what's happening in his head. And he keeps hearing this music in this orchestra in his head. OK, and so that's very funny. And then they have him go see the doctor, but he has to go through the orchestra in order to see the doctor, you know, and I was working, uh, I was playing a character who is, what is the red note? What is the green note? And I'm being very strict teacher. And it's sort of like what he's remembering uh, in his mind of all the different colors of music and different things. It's a, it's a jumbled up. I would have to read it again to be articulate about it. Stoppard is so brilliant that I don't want to do uh, shame him by, by not articulating it better, but it's that this is all inside the one prisoner's head, and that was the character Brent played. And then he had his cellmate, who was played by Jonathan. 
Yeah, it's a very dense play, especially uh, Jonathan Frakes' character he plays. He's got, like, pages of practically... Uh, I, I call them interrupted monologues, because it's basically just pages of dense dialogue with uh, the Doctor character, sometimes interrupting him for, like, a sentence or two. Right. Um, so I, I read an article, I think, might have been from the LA Times, or it was some LA magazine when the show debuted, uh, where they interviewed you, in fact, and uh, I think you had mentioned that there was, like, an interesting mix of theatergoers, because some of the theatergoers were actual fans of theater and wanted to see the play, and another large section was Star Trek fans. They would come take photos. They'd come in, like, Star Trek uniforms. Do you remember uh, much about the audiences that came to see the play? I, it was exactly what you described, and that was okay. That was great, because when people say to us, I've never seen a play or I've never seen an orchestra live before, why not start now? Let's start immediately and get you to have this under your belt and maybe you'll go see more because um, it's there is more to life than a, than a, your screen. <laughs> and again, I urge people to I mean, I will watch things on, on I stream things all the time, but there is something about going to a big movie theater or going to a live performance because it is a collective experience. Okay. So you're hearing someone else laugh. Like I remember I took my son to something when he was four in New York city. It was a dance company, Palabolus. And it's the same theater where Whoopi Goldberg did the debut of her first show. It's a small theater, but there we were and the dancers were doing something and everybody's you know, watching. And all of a sudden, my son saw something that he thought was hilarious. And he just laughed, this four-year-old laugh. And the whole audience just perked up. And they all started giggling. And it was like, I, you know, it, there was a connection. And it, I think that happens all the time. You can feel if there's like people aren't focused. And you can feel if there's a concentrated, everyone's holding their breath. You feel it. It's visceral. Now, all of your scenes in the show are with John Christian Grass. He also appeared Correct. on the episode of TNG. Uh, I'm, I've been trying to find this man. He's kind of vanished off the face of the earth. I know um, so he has. I'm I think that's. I think that no. I mean, I just loved him. He was great. Uh, he was very, very good. I think that's when Patrick cast him is because he had been on an episode of Star Trek. That's how he knew that he wanted to work with him. And we would go and rehearse. By the way, on weekends we would go Paramount gave him permission that we could use a studio. So we'd go in there and we'd rehearse and uh, everything was done very quickly. We didn't have like a lot of time to rehearse, but you know, we were, we were professionals and we did it, but yeah, no, it was, it was a blast. Wish we could have done that all the time. That would have been so much fun. I mean, I, I know there's a video recording somewhere out there. Cause that's how I first also learned a little bit more about the show. There's like a, I think a, might be for like an LA TV news station or something like that. There was some clips from it. Oh, uh, wow. Do you have any memories at all of any of the performances that happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, of course, we, we, we did it in Chicago, and that was where there was this incredible theater that was from the way back when, where the, the whole ceiling would move, the clouds could move. It was incredible. Beautiful theaters, because I wasn't used to performing in a 6,000-seat theater. I had done a lot of my my New York theater, other than Shakespeare in the Park, was like smaller, like at the public theater or, you know, like 200 seat houses uh, or 100 seat, 150 seats, things like that. Or even Lucille Lortel is even, I don't know how many of that. I think that's 300, something like that. But anyway, that was uh, what I was used to. So 6,000 people, that's, that's a lot of people. If you could do this show again with the cast, would you do it? Oh, of course. 
it was so much fun. Yeah. Easy. Answer. I wouldn't mind playing. I wouldn't mind playing the doctor though. That was really that's that's a role that's hilarious. I loved that role. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmerman. And I'm Kitty Swank. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Gates, I got a few Star Trek questions for you because, of course, we can't go this deep without talking Trek. Uh, and so one of the ones I want to know, because, again, I mentioned I've been rewatching TNG, and, of course, I started Episode 1, Season 1, all the way through. And uh, wow. I re- it's it's uh, quite an undertaking, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, I got to Skin of Evil, which uh, is the episode where Tashi Yar right. essentially leaves the show. Now, we know chronologically in filming order, uh, Denise had one more episode to go. But uh, you know, one thing I noticed when I watched the episode was... After Tasha Yar has been brought back to sick bay and Dr. Crusher is checking her out, Crusher pronounces her dead. And it stood out to me because it felt very visceral and very real, as opposed to the other times that you've said it, where, you know, it's obviously it feels real, but this time it felt different. 
And I'm wondering if like, if that was in any way related to things that were going on behind the scenes with Denise and the show, and maybe your feelings as well about ultimately leaving the show that that following season, I mean, was there anything especially, uh especially real from that scene for you? No, I think it was because the character was part of the crew. You know, I mean, if it had been data or if it had been number one or Deanna Troy, I would have felt the same way. I think it was literally there. It wasn't a deeper level. I think that's something that as, as people watch it, they might add that level on. But at the time, no. And I thought, why couldn't she have brought her back? <laughs> I kept thinking, you know, but that's more because it was, you know, it was a crew member and that was the first time that had happened. Um, I don't, you know, I, I mean, I was sad to see her go, but I totally understood her going and it had nothing to do. I had no idea. Um, I, it, mine had much more to do with one producer who we sparred and, uh, uh, he, it, he, I think he sort of said either she goes or I go. And so I was not picked up and then it just didn't work out. And so then he left and, uh, I, I was asked back. Interesting. Okay. I've always been curious about that. Like, I was always wondering if maybe you and Denise had ever commiserated together about all the problems you guys were having. Now, too bad. Maybe Denise and I, we were starting our own series and we, it was going <laughs> to be, no, that's too bad. We should have done that because, you know, later I directed her on stage. She's, we had so much fun working together. It was great. It was one of my favorite shows. I love it. And I got to ask you, of course, about Data's Day. I feel like everybody in the world is probably asking you about this. Um, and, you know, we haven't even talked really too much about your dance background. We mentioned a lot of your acting background. We haven't really talked a ton about dancing, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear about you working with Brent Spiner and getting him to follow all your crazy moves. I mean, did he have a background in dance before that? No, he had done some maybe, you know, in college or something, and he could do a soft shoot, the, the, the time step, and we worked on some other stuff, but no, basically we rehearsed it. And, uh, and then I cast someone as his stunt double because uh, his dance double, not stunt double, and that guy was really, really good. He was a superb tap dancer. And then they probably speeded up the camera as well as is my recollection. So he's not only dancing incredibly fast when he does his pirouettes, but I, I loved coming up with that sequence. I came up with a lot of the little details that are in the sequence and even a couple funny lines that I got approved. They, you know, they wrote the basic premise and stuff, but that was so much fun. Yeah, that I wish I could have done that endlessly, that kind of thing where you get to create something. But then I would not be the genius that they were when they wrote all these scientific episodes and, you know, philosophical. I mean, they they Bronin and Ron and Michael Piller and, you know, Rick Berman. I mean, there there were some incredible scripts. I mean, Dr. Crusher doesn't really get to leave sick bay too often or really leave the ship too often. But, uh, you know, I've noticed that on occasion when she does, I've felt like there's been some dance moves in things. Like I was just watching an episode. I'm going to be super nerdy here. I was just watching the episode Attached and I noticed where you basically walk up onto the transporter pad. You basically did like, I don't know the exact terms, but you kind of like did a crossover with your legs into like second position or something. Uh, it felt very, what? very elegant. <laughs> very, I know, right? It's just super duper nerdy. It's something I noticed. I love uh, it. That's so funny. I mean, did your well, dancing ever dictate any of your mobility on screen? You know, you are who you are because of the way you move. And so when the, that's always when I do a character, especially if it's a character that's not close to me. That's the most fun thing is what are the shoes like? How do you have to walk? And what's the weight? Where does it go? I love all that. Um, so, yes, I would assume that people on the ship 
needed to keep in shape and be agile. Uh, I would say Crusher, I did a lot of away teams, actually. I maybe didn't do as much as some, like Riker, but I did do, I, I remember because I always had to carry for several years that stupid medical kit that would open and everything would fall out. I mean, they should have talked to Louis Vuitton because there was no clasp. It was just, it would stay closed because they wanted it to open very quickly when I put it down. But meanwhile, if something happened and it just came off your hand, that was, you know, a three minute pickup in the sand on planet hell, you know. I love that. <laughs> now, I saw a tweet you actually just posted uh, very recently about an episode, The Host. And that was in relation to an article that just showed up in StarTrek.com right. called Growing Up Female and Queer with Star Trek. Right. And uh, just to kind of recap that episode real quick, uh, in that episode, it ends with Dr. Crusher telling the female host of Odon, uh, and I quote, Perhaps it's a human failing, but we're not accustomed to these kinds of changes. And that's meaning how you kind of fell in love with the male host. But then when Odon became the female, something changed for you. And you just addressed this in a tweet 33 years later. So I'd love you kind of uh, just tell us what you said and your thoughts on this episode. Well, I'm I'm somebody who is very inclusive gender wise. So I, I mean, I am myself. I'm heterosexual, but I'm very, I, you know, gender is something that's just fantastic that it can be so many different things for different people. I felt when I played it, because I certainly, you know, in my 20s, I had a lot of friends who were gay and lesbian, and uh, I had taught uh, workshops for theater groups that were a group of uh, gay women. So I did not want to play it that it had anything to do with her being a woman. To me, what it was is I first had this one male that that's the person I felt in love, fell in love with. I didn't know that it was this host thing when I fell in love with him. So she's already gone through that. Then very quickly, he's going to die. So you have to put it in something. So I can justify if I had put it in, you know, she didn't know what person you could put it into. I mean, what if they had put it into a child? That would have been a really different episode. So I think it could have been put in Troy. It could have been put in uh, Ogawa, whatever. I I think the first time it gets put in someone else, it it was she was still so in love that she felt it, and it was like, oh, you're not dead. Oh, I, I'm so glad this 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 Odon is still alive. But then to have very quickly after that, like you know, really quickly, it's in someone else. It's it's just too much. I don't care who it, they had put the, the third one into. I think I, I don't see how somebody, they would have to be maybe a host themselves. They would have to be that kind of a creature to understand that you could just keep changing and it didn't make any difference. For us, that was the first time we knew of this kind of species. And I think it's the fact that it was changing so fast. I don't know how you can process that it's like takes time to process things that we we understand and on to me that's what i was playing maybe someday we can process all this and but this was the first time we had seen this species within a matter of like a week it it was three different people the host was into i don't find that unusual that she couldn't process it and to me i did not at all play it i think I know people took it that way, but I didn't play it that way at all. In my mind, that that had nothing to do. If it had gone into Picard at that point, that's like too much. I, I couldn't have done that. Do you see what I mean? Like, if, even if it had been John Luke, that would have been like really confusing. I couldn't have done that. 
So I think people need to look at it in terms of like go deeper and think about it, that it's not just about the surface thing of suddenly as a man or woman, but you know, it's like if you had your pet and you took this host out of your pet and you had in, in a matter of a couple of days, it's like three different looking dogs or something. It's going to screw with how you feel about that, you know? And, you know, since I brought up some stuff from season one, I also wanted to mention, I don't know if you were aware, uh, there was a writer named David Gerald, and he was trying to get some LGBT themes uh, back in the first season, and Roddenberry yeah. pushed back against that. Right. Uh, and yet, you know, here we are today now, and we have a lot more LGBT inclusiveness in Star Trek. Which is fantastic. Finally, finally. But then we also have this subset of fans who's very much against it because they think it's quote unquote edgy or that it's pushing a topic that doesn't affect the plot or just really doesn't affect them. So uh, what is your take on, on modern uh- inclusivity in Trek? I feel that we, in order to go forward, we have to be inclusive, okay? We have to become tolerant. We have to become more accepting of people who are different from us. We don't have to be like them. We can be, be ourselves. Uh, I think that the, the wonderful thing about Star Trek is you can, it's the world. We have people, we are not just in our little our big countries, whatever, this nationalism, we are also of the world and we are going to Mars and we are going to a space station. And this is the future. You know, it, our planet is in jeopardy environmentally. Um, we have to learn how to live together. And that's one of the great things about the prime directive, the Federation. It's like, even though we would like to impose something, we're not going to do that. Uh, yes, we sometimes make mistakes and then we t- we try to correct them as much as we can. I can understand how it's against some people's religious beliefs or their feelings, and they have absolutely a right to feel that way. Um, so they they there are many other aspects of Star Trek they can enjoy. And I don't I think the world itself, like what's not edgy about COVID-19? That's pretty edgy that you you can, we didn't know how we could get it. Here we were washing our groceries when we got home, you know, and then we find out, no, no, it's, it's respiratory. So you don't have to wash your food in that same way, the boxes and everything. It's edgy. Life is edgy as far as I'm concerned. It's also wonderful, but it, sh- it can change on a dime, right? Great answer. Great answer. Now, on kind of a lighter topic here, I think this is going to be one of those episodes that you could ask about all the time. And uh, I think you already probably know where I'm going with this. That's Sub Rosa. And, oh. uh, you know, I've spoken with Jonathan about this. I've also spoken to Duncan Regeer about this, who was Ronan in that episode. Oh, I, how, he's so wonderful. He's such a good artist, too. You know, oh, that. he's amazing. We talked all about his art career, all about his acting as well. Brilliant, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to hear a little bit about working on that episode. And uh, I'd like to just get initially, what was your first thoughts when you read that script? <laughs> oh, my first thought was it was wild, you know, and Jerry. Taylor had written that for me. She wanted me to, she felt nobody had let me really be um, super feminine and sexy and have, have this kind of story. And um, so that was so lovely of her. Okay. And I ended up having a blast doing it. Okay. It was just total blast. Duncan was so great. Was it kind of like silly that my whole family of women suddenly we find out they've all been in love with this lamp and the spirits i mean you can really make comedy about it it would be a good saturday night live sketch is that you you're all in love with this lamp ronan so that part was it again it was like like genesis it was a different kind of an episode 
but she's on vacation, <laughs> whatever. I, I think you have to balance that. You know, I wasn't a producer on the show. If you're a producer or you're the artistic director of a theater, you decide what plays you're going to do or, you know, what the scripts are like. If you're not, you're an actor on the show. And if you're given a script, you can give notes to, that you might think might make it better, but there's absolutely zero guarantee that you're going to be listened to. So you play what you're given and you get into it. It's like any time we got out of our uniforms after so many years, it was fun because you got to imagine something else. So if you look at it that way and don't become too rigid about your feeling about what the Trek world has to be, you can say, yes, it was slightly wacky um, and you can either like it or not. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it and I appreciated getting that script. It wasn't at all what I had anticipated. It wouldn't have been what I would have requested in that way. But I felt very fortunate to have a part that was, uh, you know, focused on me at that point. So um, I'm grateful. And I can tell you, you know, as you may be aware, Duncan also appeared on DS9 as a recurring role of Shakar. But he actually told me he much preferred oh, playing Run. Oh, really? He much I didn't preferred. Know that. Yeah, he had like, I think, five appearances in Deep Space Nine, but he felt the, the character of, of Ronin was just so much uh, more substantial to him and so much more to work with. It was also, uh, yeah, he was, he's such a gentleman and he's so um, elegant, you know. He gave me a beautiful painting. Do you know that? He, he did a beautiful one of, uh, of Beverly Crusher in the role. It was just really beautiful. Yeah, I treasure it. No, he's, he was so lovely to work with. And um, again, that's for you guys, the fans, to argue about. For me, I'm not going to argue about that because my role was to act what, what you know, act the part. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that people talk about a lot now, and it's also kind of made into a meme, uh, is just all of Beverly's, uh, for lack of a better word, phantom orgasms. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> oh, you... no. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I'm glad I haven't seen those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and was it weird if you'd have to, like, basically do this kind of performance uh, with, you know, essentially by yourself. Yeah. Essentially by myself. No, no, it's not weird. It's like you, you, you're, you're paid to act. What can I tell you? You know? Yeah. I did a lot of research on that. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> you can, <laughs> you're paid to act. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of memes too, I had a lot of people wanted to know this of all the things, you know, there's tons of Star Trek questions, but I think there was just to make people who wanted to know if you're aware of the blazing Beverly memes. Have you seen those memes? I'm not sure. I've seen, I've seen some memes, but I'm not sure of all of them. No, I, I can't say that I know all of them, but I certainly have seen a few that are funny. I just saw a new one that was with Picard and Crusher, and they both have their hands out like we've forgotten how to shake hands. We have to learn after COVID. <laughs> and it was very funny, I have to say. I thought it was good. Yeah, well, I mean, our fans are so clever. I love the stuff people come up with. <laughs> I mean, you know you've made it when you're a meme. That's pretty much the truth. Really? Okay. Well, I was a meme like this kind of meme when I was young. But. <laughs> Different kind of meme, but yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, you know, about your action figures, because I'm an action figure collector. I've actually got a, in fact, one of the prototypes of a Beverly Crusher figure. Uh, so I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on your toys. Uh, did you like your action figures? Did they look like you? Oh, you know, I don't know that I felt they, uh, you know, some of them do, some of them do, some of them don't. Um, the first one that came out, the very first one, uh, they sent it to me, and I can't even remember if I was allowed approval at that point or not. I can't remember, but 
my son, who was one and a half or two, he went, he saw it and went, a mummy doll. Because he had seen me in uniform so much that he didn't, he had never watched Star Trek. He did not know anything about, I didn't own a TV, by the way. I didn't want my son to get so inundated with TV that he didn't, he wasn't allowed to even see his first video until he was three. So he had never, you know, he didn't have that facility. He didn't understand that's what camera was doing. So he would just go down to the set and Uncle Brent, who was his godfather, would just look like that. And then he'd, it would take him time to understand that Brent was the person who was also normal. Michael Dorn, he didn't make that connection for a long time. He <laughs> understood who Worf was, but he didn't have a clue who Michael Dorn was, you know? And then, fi- of course, then he, he, he got it as he got older. But that's what was fun about it is to, to have him see that. And it's just like when I'd be autographing, we used to have to autograph so many pictures that we were asked, like they'd give us a box of a thousand. We had to autograph them or you're sending them to the fans or whatever. And I remember when at one point he was like, stop signing your face, come play with me. And I went, okay, that's it. I am not signing anymore. We are playing. The idea that his mommy is signing her face, (laughs) you know? So I went, okay, got to watch that. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to make you sign your face at a convention one day. I promise you that much. <laughs> okay. Where are you located right now? I'm in New York, New York City. Oh, I lived there for 20 some years. I love New York. All right. So Gates, one of the last things I got to ask you, of course, today, everybody wants to know, will Dr. Crusher return and will we ever see her in Star Trek Picard? Well, I hope so, but I really don't know. At this point, there's there's nothing concrete. I think you're really going to have to ask Patrick. I think it's going to be Patrick's choice. That's my my feeling. So we'll see. It'd be great. Well, if you want to send me Patrick's cell phone, I'll totally ask him. Not a problem. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and yeah, again, we're talking here today about your upcoming podcast, uh, which I believe comes out on May 12th, Gates yep. McFadden Investigates. It's and... actually Investigates. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Great name, by the way. Uh, and you. so, you know, just last thing about that show, Alive or Dead, who is your dream guest you would love to spend an hour talking with? Uh, Whoopi has agreed to do one, so I'm certainly looking forward to that one. That that's a pretty dream guest. Uh, she's she's unbelievable, isn't she? Uh, there's just so many people. Everybody I'm talking to, I go, God, there's they're even more interesting than I already thought. I, I there's there are no duds in the this world, so I I feel uh, you know can't wait. I wouldn't mind doing one with Stacey Abrams or Cory Booker, some of these people who really are Trek fans, but who are also uh, potentially you know they're they're doing it in real life that's uh that's an amazing thing yeah it's really truly an amazing thing how many people were really affected by star trek and again as i mentioned earlier in the show i asked my listeners to give me some questions but a lot of them just had comments and they wanted to say please tell her that dr crusher inspired me to pursue a stem career and these are coming from a lot of wow. women especially so i mean oh. you know, the community just is so grateful for what you've done I mean, you see, it doesn't get much better than that. I, I, I certainly don't take any credit, but I do feel honored to have been part of a show that, that gave women and men role models because we need them. And um, I had them in my life, and I feel it's crucial for all of us if we want to go forward together. So I'm, I'm honored. I thank all of you who have thanked me uh, because you are my future. 
Well, Gates, thank you so much for chatting today. You know, we didn't even get My a chance pleasure. to talk too in depth about Genesis. I have this whole list of questions, so hopefully I can investigate we'll do it another, another time. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Take well, thank care. Thank you so much. And for everybody who wants to check out Gates McFadden Investigates, we're going to have links to all of that. So make sure you check it out from the Nacelle Company. Their brand new podcast series are just beginning. I'm sure they've got a lot more, and I'm really excited to listen to the show, too. So congratulations on your project coming out, coming to life. Thank you, Matthew. A pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Gates. Live long and you- prosper. <laughs> thank you. You too. And that was our chat with Gates McFadden. Thank you again for coming by my humble show to talk Star Trek and so much more. And of course, if you want to check out her new podcast from the Nacelle Cast Studios, look up Gates McFadden Investigates, Who Do You Think You Are, starting on May 12th when it debuts wherever you listen to podcasts. But just don't forget to listen to Trek Untold before you check out her show, please, if you don't mind. Thank you. Now, unfortunately, today, we didn't get to talk more about Genesis during the time I had with her, like when we started this episode and we began to talk about it. As you can tell, a lot of other fun stuff came up, and we never really got back to it. But in the meantime, here's a few facts about that episode just to kind of tide you over until the next time happens. This episode was the first time an episode of Star Trek was directed by a female cast member, with the next one happening some years later when Roxanne Dawson directed an episode of Voyager. Michael Westmore and his team had a ton of work to do on this episode, and they were nominated for an Emmy in that category of makeup for their efforts. Now, while this was the first time Gates had directed a TV episode, it wasn't the first time she had ever directed. While we didn't talk a ton today about her choreography career working with a lot of the Jim Henson productions, including Labyrinth, obviously that counts as a type of directing, and she has directed a ton of productions on stage across the country. Production for this episode was delayed due to the Northridge earthquake, forcing them to stop for two days, according to interview Gates did with Entertainment Tonight back in 1994. And by the way, this was the same earthquake that caused Armin Sherman to run off the DS9 set and drive back home to check on his family while wearing full quark makeup. If you want to hear that story, go ahead and check out that episode of this podcast. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. And until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by TrekSphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.